You're listening to the Player Layer Podcast. I'm your host, Ivan Alexiev, and today I've got with me John DeCampos, who is one of the designers and the illustrator for Token Terror's Battleground Season 1. You can find it on Kickstarter right now. It's a really cool skirmish game for two players. I really enjoyed playing it. It's got some great artwork. He's also releasing some comics along with the game, lots of lore. But ultimately, I really enjoyed having this conversation with him, and I think you will too. Thank you so much for listening, and enjoy. joined by John DeCampos, who is the creator of Token Terror's Battleground Season 1. How are you doing, John? Hey, Ivan. I'm doing good. And uh, just a quick clarification. I'm at, so I created the Token Terror's idea, like the idea of making dice-sized miniatures for Magic the Gathering and D&D. I thought that was a good idea. And then I co-created the game for the Season 1 Battlegrounds rule set. So my other, my other uh, co-creators are Philip Dacolo and uh, Lucas Girache. All right, so before we start, could you tell me a little bit about the game itself, a quick pitch for the game? Uh, sure, yeah. So Token Terrors Battlegrounds is a one-versus-one uh, semi-abstract strategy battle game where uh, players are um, eternally like living warlords who you guys are you're going to draft an army of 10 mini monsters that you're choosing, and then you're going to enter a 7x7 seven seven grid and... Uh, battle to the death using asymmetric uh, faction abilities based on the armies that you draft. Awesome. And you've been working on this game for about three years, but you said that in the beginning it started off not as a game, but just as a game accessory for Magic or D&D. Yeah, yeah. The So we spent about a year developing the minis, and we ran into a lot of obstacles when coming up against exactly how to design them efficiently. Um, there's a lot of different methods for uh, manufacturing miniatures. And what we wanted to do with ours was make them so that they didn't have any bendable, breakable parts or any attached bases. We wanted them to sort of function as like a toy almost. Um, and we sort of like zeroed in on the visual identity of what the product was going to be. And we really like workshop the heck out of each of the individual sculpts. I remember the soldiers in particular were like really tough to nail down exactly how they were going to look. Um, but once we had them all, we sort of lined them up. We had some resin prints and we had our renders and everything. And we just thought they were really, really cool. After about a year, year and a half of developing these guys, we were ready to take them to Kickstarter as just gaming accessories, thinking like that would be fine. And then we saw like Gloomhaven or something like just do insane numbers on Kickstarter. And I was like, we're going to Kickstarter anyway. So why don't we like just make a board game really quick? No big deal. And um I thought it would probably take us maybe like six months or a year to make something that used the tokens that was that was like effective and was a fun game. Uh, but we ended up sort of exploring a, a full system, like an, a, a combat system and, uh, you know, with the seven by seven grid and everything. And it took us about two years to get the game to where it is now. It's been, you know, the version that's playable on Tabletop Simulator at the moment is probably the 12th iteration of token terrors battlegrounds and i can say now with some confidence that i think we have a system that will uh stand the test of time we'll be able to expand upon it for a while but yeah it, it did it did take us a minute to get there how did you like when you first decided we're making a board game out of this not not just a, a toy what were those like first steps 
did you know from from the beginning that you wanted to be like a skirmish? Well, you know, at at the crux of of what you're going to do with the token terrors in the world of Magic the Gathering, and I guess uh, also as minions in in Dungeons and Dragons or Pathfinder or whatever your tabletop RPG is, um, you know, what we found prohibitive about a lot of miniatures is that the cost associated with getting a lot of them into the game was usually a little bit restrictive. Uh, you're talking about between two and four dollars per mini. So if you have like a scene in a TTRPG or in Magic the Gathering, you're trying to generate an army of miniature token creatures as a token generation deck tends to do. Um, you would have to spend a bunch of money to get a, a, an army of miniatures out like that. So when thinking about how we designed the game, we knew that we were going to have to work around a mechanic where you were going to be controlling you know, a number of any one faction, you know what I mean? Uh, which is great for us because since we designed them to be, uh, you know, cost conscious in the way that they're manufactured, that's why we're able to sell a small footprint uh, skirmish game for like 45 bucks that also has 42 miniatures inside because you're getting six of every faction. So that was sort of at the at the crux of where I think the design started was with the idea that, okay, there's going to be like at least three of these little dudes on the battleground. And uh, so Phil... Um, the co-designer I mentioned earlier, he sort of came up with the uh, the the support beams of what the game design was. So the threat mechanic where you get, um, you know, a plus one to your power toughness if you have adjacent dudes from the same faction next to your active token. Uh, the idea of the grid being a seven by seven um, evasion rolls on uh, on range attacks um, and also each individual action that you do with a single a single token per turn being like a command or an action point management system like he he made all of that stuff like my I think my contribution to the initial game concept was just that I wanted them to get shaken around in a bag and that it should be on a grid maybe I think those might have been my only notes and then a, a couple days later he came back and like had a semi-functional version of the game that got me really excited um and from there we we just kind of just started developing it and iterating and, and got it to where it is now yeah it's it's awesome when you can work as a team on a, a project like this and you're the one who's also focused on the illustrations of the game right yeah yeah that and you know that was as as a magic player the the intellectual uh it, the invention portion of of this project was really just like an aha moment when me and my other co-designer uh, Lucas were playing a game of magic where we were both doing a token generation deck and we were kind of stalemated where all we could do is just hit our upkeep or hit our, our, our first main phase and go, well, I can't attack you because you have too many guys out and I have too many guys. I can't even work out the math on this. Um, so I'm just going to, I don't know. I'm just going to trigger this enchantment. Like I've been doing for the last 10 turns and generate three new soldiers tokens. So we just, we had all this stuff on the table. And uh, that's when the uh, that's when, you know, that that whole thing woke up and I was like, wow, there should be a cool little mini for this. But then, yeah, collaborating with those two guys specifically and to a lesser extent, like the rest of the team, Shannon and Tim have all kind of had a hand in, you know, curtailing certain parts. Shannon's really been getting her hands dirty and doing the rule booklet. So there's been parts where she's just like, this needs to be shorter. This needs to be tighter. So we've all really kind of attacked the uh, the mechanisms and the gameplay. Um, but but uh, Lucas and Phil have really been elemental. And um, with Lucas particularly, he's he's my best friend of like he's like my little brother. And for us, like. I'll just call him up and be like, hey, like you before COVID, we would just meet up like almost weekly and play test. Um, so we've really gotten a lot of time to dig through it and kind of make sure that it's nice and tight. Yeah, you can really feel the tightness in the game, which I really love. 
At what point did you take those playtests outside of just your internal group and have some more eyes on it? Uh, did you go to any conventions or anything like that? Yeah, the first time, um, I think after about two weeks of us uh, working up the initial rules, um, and at the time we were still using uh, like colored meeple and stuff and like and um, cardstock printed grids, we invited like eight or nine of our buddies, like 10 or so people who are all into board games and are huge dorks over to Phil's place. And we had some beer and pizza and uh, I gave him a sheet of paper. I was just, just take notes. I printed out like a one sheet of how the rules worked at that time. Everybody played it, gave us some notes. And uh, then um, shortly after that, I started to sort of whittle down. I got really, really excited and, and just sort of like super focused on getting the game to, to something that I thought was playable and sort of trying to like shape it into something that felt a little bit more balanced. And um, eventually we ended up partnering with a local game space called No Land Beyond that was very generous in giving me just a weekly Thursday night residency from six to nine. Mm-hmm. So I would just go in. Um, yeah, we had a standing uh, a standing event where every Thursday was Token Terrorist Thursday. You could come in and I would be there. And for a while, I was like, come in and play me. If you beat me at my own game, I'll give you a T-shirt. We made these cool T-shirts and stuff. And then, yeah, we we got the the Indie Tabletop Showcase at MAGFest two years in a row. Um, we've been on pub a couple times. We went to PAX Unplugged. Uh, you know, we did all the things that you should do if you're if you're getting into the into the indie publishing world yeah i really like the concept of if you beat the designer <laughs> you get a t-shirt yeah. <laughs> it's, it's uh really cool um thanks so uh you you uh you you're, you've also worked on a lot of lore for the game could you tell me what it's mm-hmm. uh what it consists of and what it's like working on lore for a game um the lore is basically like right now because we're talking about the initial the the first season of token terrors which is called token terrors prime evil there's sort of like the preeminent races that have dominated the landscape of terra which is the fictional continent that the token terrors inhabit there are lots of other creatures on this continent but as players we just don't experience them yet because we only are we're just experiencing the first the first uh most prominent races so you got your goblins and elves, uh, wyverns, um, flying machine soldiers, and zombies. So uh, each of them sort of has like a genesis story that's in the lore section of our website. But basically, the idea is is that the the humans, elves, and goblins all sort of came from the same uh, shared ancestor, and because of the landscape that they, um, you know, found civilization in. Uh, for goblins, it's the Mesa Mountains, which are these like red ashy sort of you know clay mountains and the elves it's the deep growth woods and the soldiers well the humans didn't have anything so they had to build what they have out of nothing which is why the capital city of terra is tokenopolis it's this big white uh city in the middle with all these bricks and wood and everything that they took from the other other regions and they had to fight for them the zombies nobody really knows where they came from they're just kind of a problem that they're all kind of dealing with the wyverns are basically like nature's answer to the encroaching races of these other three prominent life forms um and so they're like the the apex predator on the on the continent and then the flying machines are actually a creation by the humans because they're the only ones who are like kind of going after the zombie threat head on and they just keep on losing guys so they decided to build a little robot to help them fight the zombie scourge and uh there's some unexpected outcomes from those things being introduced to the landscape because the goblins are like ripping them apart and making them into little battle bots and reprogramming them and the elves destroy them on site because you know 
they think that nature is is uh, sacred and that technology is like ag- against their way of life. And yeah, and developing the lore. So we have the creation story, and then I've been working on some stuff for the game itself. So there's a comic book called The Chronicles of Chaos, which is a six chapter spotlight on each faction where you just see like a moment. Um, it you know it's usually about four pages, but you get to see sort of like their sensibilities. Like there's one about the goblins where it's these two goblins. They wake up really early in the morning while all the other goblins in the cave are sleeping and they like grab their gear and you can see the sun rising over the top of the Azure cliffs, which is where the, the wyverns uh, live. So they like scale the side of the sheer cliff and they can see at the top, there's a nest of wyvern eggs. They're going to get breakfast. They want to go eat wyvern eggs. And um, they get to the top and of course they get attacked by a wyvern and it's like this hellish battle and no spoiler alerts, but like the end is really cool. And one of the goblins loses an eyeball and, and like it's, uh, you know, and what we're just basically showing is like the goblins don't care about any like consequences don't matter to them. Like they'll just do whatever they want to do because they feel like it, right. They're reckless. Um, and then, you know, we have like a creation story with the with the flying machine where you the whole comic is you see one flying machine being made from it's a shell, like the outer casing shell part of the flying machine. You just see the entire thing get assembled from beginning to end. Um, and then you see it fly off into terror to go join the soldiers on a scouting mission. So, you know, like I'm having a lot of fun. It's a ton of work. Um, I kind of wish I hadn't obligated myself to to do a comic also in the middle of a Kickstarter campaign. But uh I, I do really enjoy making it. And then additionally, and I don't mean to ramble, uh, <laughs> um, we got a, um, we got a note. Uh, we got, we got a note early on from a reviewer who um, had said that he liked the game. He was like, this is a no brainer if you're a magic player. Absolutely. Like the game is cool. Like he had a little bit of difficulty with some of the rules, but whatever. But his main critique was that there was no narrative depth to the game. So what we did was we came up with these two new cards that actually I just added. I just added three of them to the campaign today. They're called grudge cards, the grudge card. So each side of the card does a different thing. One side is like a rhyming narrative poem that tells the story of a shared history between two factions. Um, And the other side is full bleed artwork with a in-game mechanism that will do one of these two things. It'll either synergize two factions that make a lot of sense together like the flying machines and humans, um, which their ability is called field command. And it's sick. It's so cool. Um, And then the other ones are called grudge cards, where instead of it being two factions that work together, if you meet the condition of having two opponents control a faction each, like in the case of goblins and elves, there is a mechanism that is active throughout the game, provided that an elf is attacking a goblin or a goblin is attacking an elf. So you get some cool artwork. You get some depth of play in a slightly more complex gaming mechanism, but on the back of every card is like this rhyming story that tells you about the two factions and why they're fighting or why they like each other. Uh, so we're we're just trying to put some lore into the box, and I think that like in that in that uh, mission we have definitely succeeded, and we're going to see how players like the mechs um, when they when they get their hands on them. Yeah, it's something that I really like about your campaign is how many like selling points you have for the game. Like not only the the comic book is something which I think adds a lot to it because comic books are awesome and I think there's a, a huge uh group of people, you know, that love board games and comic books and I I just think it's so cool when uh a game does something like that, like whether it's a comic book or some deeper kind of uh like narrative thing like you said. And you've you've got the minis and there's just so many hooks for for people to latch onto, and and I, I hope 
that the, the campaign does well because I think there's definitely a lot more that you can do with the games. And could you tell me about those uh, plans that you have? Because you've, you've called the game Season 1, which implies uh, Season 2 or maybe Season 0 even with the pandemic legacy now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I see. So, okay, really quickly, let me just fly completely off the rails here and talk to you about what the actual Season 0 is. So... Yes, there's there's plans for expanded content. We do want to do a season model where once or twice a year we will release six new factions. And I think um, we don't quite know what that release schedule really looks like because we're kind of going to be bouncing off of the success of the first campaign, which, by the way, for anybody listening, we're currently uh, we have met our funding goal at 15K and we've exceeded that. So we're around 160 percent funded now um, and we still have about uh, two weeks left um, at the time of this recording. So um <clears throat> Uh, yeah, so for expanded seasons, absolutely. We have a uh, the season two follow up is going to be called Terror Rising, and uh, it's going to be vampires, ghosts, branchlings, which is our answer to the sapperlings from Magic the Gathering. They're these little tree stump dudes that have like cactus matter brains inside of their tree stumps that they hold in with their arms, they waddle around. Um, the myrmidons, which are uh, these exploding robots that the humans made because they needed more firepower against the zombies. Uh, dragons and did I say vampires yet? Vampires, vampires, ghosts, dragons, myrmidons, branchlings, and yeah. Oh, and mer people. The mer people are my favorite. Okay, so um, yeah. So they all have their own mechanisms. They all have their own sculpts. They're actually in prototype phase in the TTS mod that we have up now that is public. Um, and also if you go in there, you'll see two other kinds of token terrors in there. Now they're slightly larger. Uh, these are both part of a season one expansion we're calling primeval power. And instead of like, you know, a full game with 42 minis and six factions inside, uh, these guys are going to be like these badass team captains that'll give faction wide buffs to all the goblins or all the elves. Right. And then, and then they each have their own special abilities and the different, um, the, the differentiator between a token tyrant and a token Titan is their size. A, a tyrant occupies two spaces, has a standing threat of two, which again, if you've never played the game is basically their attack and a defense score. Um, and then they have these cool abilities that will like help all the elves, right? Um, and then, uh, there's the token Titans, which are these giant monsters that, occupy four squares they have three token talents instead of two and they are very powerful but the kicker with them is that because they occupy four squares they also eat four spots in your army so if your opponent kills that thing you just lost half your army basically uh so there is a risk reward there with them and yeah we want to do one tyrant or titan for every faction in season one and release that as a follow-up after we fulfill product from the first campaign i'm thinking maybe like a month or a month or two because it'll still you know if we if we launch that campaign a month after everybody gets season one in their hands they can get excited about it but they're not actually going to have that stuff in their hands for another six to eight months so Mm -hmm. i figure that's enough that's enough time for people to sort of wrap their head around our initial offering um but you talked about a season zero. So I just want to tell you about one of the. So, OK, I'm a little bit like I have like way too much fun designing games. And especially when it was so weird, like after we had the second playtest with our friends while we were doing season one, it like dawned on me like I can just decide that there's ghosts in this game. Like, <laughs> why didn't I never figure this out before? We can just make more guys. And um, 
so I, you know, when I'm at the park with my kid, I got a five-year-old or if, you know, if I'm waiting around for something like a uh, oil change, I'll just whip out my phone and open up a Google doc and start writing out creatures, right. And start making up mechanisms for them. So we did this one. Uh, it's called primordial. It, it is the season zero. It's the prehistoric precursors to all the season one factions. So it's like, you know, sloped brow elves with tusks coming out of their mouths and, you know, uh, like slingshots. And what we want to do with that season, which is like, so I've written like 35 seasons of token terrors. No big deal. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. That's like 240 different factions. But anyway, don't focus on that too much. We did this one that's all about like the caveman versions of all of the season one guys. And what's really neat about them is not only do you get like the, um, you know, the Neanderthal versions of goblins and elves and, and zombies and stuff, but they're each going to be paired with titans that are dinosaurs. So with a mount ability. So we want to do like this whole prehistoric thing uh, later as like the season zero, but it'll be way down the line. But it's been really fun exploring like the nearly endless possibilities of, of different things that we can add to the game. Yeah. Could you tell me about your work ethic and motivation? Because I feel like you've been doing so much throughout the campaign and so much for the game. Uh, could you tell me how you keep up that tempo? Well, thanks. That's really nice of you to say. Um, I've been doing freelance art for about five years. So since, since we had our baby, my partner has a full-time gig, COVID has a shut inside, so we're not going outside or spending very much money. Uh, so she's been working, and she knew when going into the campaign, especially leading up and during, that I was going to be pretty preoccupied and just kind of like straight focus, keeping my head down on this kind of stuff. Um, but one thing that, like, literally, like two years into me doing freelance, the first like major skill that I learned outside of just being able to create artwork is about uh, self governance and figuring out how to prioritize your time. Um, you know, not, not like, not like when you're freelance, there's no one telling you what to do. So sometimes when you sit down to feel to, you know, take a break and play a video game for an hour, you feel kind of guilty. Like, <laughs> you know, you, you should be working, right? You could be working. Your desk is just right over there. You just could be getting stuff done. So at this point, I've kind of figured out like how to prioritize my projects. And, uh, I, I gotta say in full honesty, because of all the stuff going on in the world, COVID and the state of the United States at the moment, I've sort of been using my workload and this project is a bit of a life raft. It's it, it's tough to really just kind of grapple with everything going on out there all the time. And I, I do keep up with current events. Uh, you know, I got my, my news cycle in the morning when I have my coffee and stuff, but it's a lot easier for me to just kind of lock that out of my brain for a couple hours and dig into some work. And, uh, you know, also, it, it doesn't help that I do really want to see the campaign do well. So that's why I've been sort of on this tear of creating more art. But aside from that, like even before the even before the the shutdown, um, you know, I'm in I'm, I'm currently in two bands. I play drums and guitar in some bands. I do event promotion. I plan an annual video game music festival. I'm part of a um, I'm on, on the artistic council for a not for profit rock opera society that's here in Baltimore. Uh, I had already been very busy. But, you know, I would say probably the trick is to just drink a really big cup of coffee in the morning and and then know what you want to get done every day. Make a list. I got a I, I got a dry erase board with a list of objectives on it. Um, every time I need to add something like a podcast uh, to my schedule, I take out my phone. I go, hey, Google, add the calendar immediately. I get it on there. So, you know, yeah, I, I think it's about staying vigilant dig and and positive, I guess. Are th is there anything that you think you'd do differently next time leading up to the Kickstarter and what, what are some things basically you've done right and some things you think you could do better? 
Um, I can tell you the stuff that I would change about what we're going to do next time we run the campaign. First of all, we'll probably run it for under 22 days. The 30 day campaign span is just, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm very, very grateful for the backers we have, uh, you know, uh, for a first time creator, having 400 plus backers is huge. We funded the project. This is great. You know, we'll be able to get validation from the market after we deliver. I am very thankful. Cannot overstate that enough. Um, when you're in the middle of the campaign, even though you're at 23,000 and you have funded at 15K, you're overfunded and a day goes by where you lose a $90 pledge and make nothing. You're just like, oh, God, dude, like <laughs> you, you feel like you're really messing up. Um, it's a weird headspace to be in because like the whole time leading up to this thing, I've been like, all we got to do is fund. Like, all we got to do is do this thing and then deliver it to people. And then we will have made our mark. We can move on from there. We will have started to build something. Um, but, you know, the one thing for any first time creators listening right now that I did not hear about is what happens after you fund. Like if you're that first time creator and you get out the gate, like what are you supposed to do after you hit that? If, if you fund in the first day, woo. Awesome. Now what? Right. If you don't have like a meticulously planned marketing plan with preset dates, releases, streaming video content, uh, leading up to the campaign for the first couple months, there's a slightly complex. It's not that tough once you start to just like expose yourself to it on a on a regular basis, but it's something called mirror testing and A/B testing. You're basically putting money behind paid ads, and you're taking the same ad and sharing it with two different audiences to see who responds better, or you're taking a set of three or four ads and putting them all out to the same people to see which one performs better. There's basically this process of elimination where you're putting money behind an advertisement and you're slowly melting it down into the most potent golden brick of advertising goodness that you can get. You must, must, must create that ad and have it in the chamber ready to go by the time you launch the campaign. We did not do this. And we're spending that money now and we're scrambling to try to figure out how to keep momentum up on the campaign. And then there's also a media release. Like I saw this thing that Oath did where they were doing like a fireside chat kind of thing with the creator and like talking about the world and the lore and the art. And, uh, you know, like I just wish that we had had more of an attack plan on content to release. I, I thought I was like, I'm just going to make a comic book, man. People are going to love that. Like. We'll just we'll put a comic book out every couple of days and boom, that'll take care of the mid campaign slump. No problem. Nah, it's not the case. Basically, that's I think that's the only thing where we really kind of stumbled is mm -hmm. on adver advertising and a schedule of planned releases during the campaign. Otherwise, I think we're doing OK. Yeah, I've heard the same thing from many other like kick Kickstarter creators. You need to keep people engaged, which which I think you're doing quite quite a bit of, especially well, I see it a lot on Facebook. What are the, the the places where you go to? I've heard that you're not a fan of Reddit. Um, yeah, I mean, Facebook in general has kind of been where I have lived. I've also um, cultivated a fairly decent following on Instagram. Um, my the my Instagram profile for my artwork as like a freelance artist has I think like thirty three thousand six hundred something like that. Um, the one for token tears, I think, is around like 680 followers. So like that kind of stuff, like I sort of understand the cycle of how you need to do releases on there, which is it, it is kind of weird. Like 
there's this like clinical approach to content creation now because of the way the social media works that can make a creator like myself, like the first six months of getting acclimated to this landscape of posting parallel to what you're trying to sell. Uh, you feel like you're kind of playing a mind game and like you're like feigning social engagement with people for the sake of selling them, even though you're not selling them directly. It's, you know, you got to kind of get into this mindset like the community is there to help you provided that you ask them in the right way. And like, I can't overstate enough how like thankful I am for the people who I've encountered in the indie board game creation community um, who have just, you know, been like, relentless champions for our project really supported us. And I don't mean just like backing us, like sharing posts, commenting on stuff, helping me work the game up, play testing the game on to- on a uh, tabletop simulator. You know, when it comes to Reddit and uh, I'm glad you brought this up. The problem is with Reddit that even though they sell ads and for any creators out there listening to me, like don't get it twisted. Uh, Reddit is a great community, but you need to treat it like a community, which I, I can say, honestly, like I didn't really do that, which is probably one of the reasons why I was sort of shunned. Um, you can just pay for ads on Reddit, like as much as the culture of Reddit sort of says that, like, they don't want to be spammed at. They don't want to be sold to. I get it. Like Reddit is sort of like that community driven grassroots sort of front page on the Internet, old school Internet users on Reddit. Like they don't want people trying to spam them. Right. Um that's fine. Uh, but the problem is, is like all the protocols that prevent people from promoting their projects on Reddit kind of, in my case, just scare them off from using it altogether. Uh, you know, it, in my particular case, I made a post on a Magic the Gathering subreddit that has 400,000 people in it. Huge place for us to be because we want to speak directly to that market. And I made a post that just kind of snuck under the radar of the admins because I didn't plug the Kickstarter in the post. I just shared a picture and was like, what do you think of these token creatures we made? And it got like 3000 upvotes and like 300 comments. And anytime somebody asked where I want to where I'm throwing my money at the computer, where can I get this? I would be like, here's a link to our Kickstarter preview page. Thank you. And this got me banned instantly. No conversation, no warning, no like, hey, I don't know if you understand how things work, blah, blah, blah. No. I'm just not allowed to be there at all. So, and and that experience just kind of made me think like anytime I go to Reddit thinking like I'm going to post something about the product, you know what I do? I stop right in the middle and go, eh, not going to now, um, which isn't a huge deal. But if you want to be on Reddit and there, there's a lot of reasons to be there, um, you actually need to be like a person for a while in those groups not just like an ambassador for your brand or your project, which I think that I will say I'll own that mistake on my part. I, I think it's important to find those communities that want your game. Like like you said about the Magic the Gathering community is for your game, that's an audience which you know is going to want uh, potentially to buy the game or is going to have an interest. And I think it's uh, it's really important to find those places where uh, just know, know your consumer know, know, know who's going to buy the game know who's going to be excited by the game and find the places where they are yeah I mean the, the thing is and I didn't even put this together until very recently the problem with marketing to Magic the Gathering players is that Magic the Gathering players only want to hear about Magic the Gathering they don't care uh, about other stuff uh, like if you're if you're if you're making a um, a collectible card game for Kickstarter or you're making a trading card game for Kickstarter you can't just waltz into a magic group 
and be like, hey, check out this cool game I made that's kind of like magic, but it's not magic, but I made it and it's cool and I think you might like it. They, that that will get that will get squashed. Uh, <laughs> um, and for us, it's kind of the same deal, except for that we are just trying to promote an accessory at the same time. Like I'm in magic groups and I don't see stuff from like I don't see sleeve manufacturers or people who make neoprene mats or dice on on magic groups like if you're in a magic group you got to talk about magic cards you got to talk about playing magic (laughs) um so yeah finding your audience has been tough and i mean something you said earlier you were like i think it's so cool how like they're magic guys and they're minions for D &D, and like you got your own game and there's all this lore and all this stuff it is cool and i thought it was really cool too the problem is is like when you're marketing your product to people you really need to think about it like the barrier of entry for educating your your buyer and for us, we just have so much stuff that we want to tell them about how great our thing is that it's tough to get it in a little 150 character one sentence bite. You know, the education part of, of advertising this product has really been kind of a challenge, especially since we know, like we absolutely know that the Magic the Gathering community loves our tokens, but we just don't know how to break into that side of the market, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And are you the one who's doing most of the marketing for the game or are, are you getting any help? Yeah, um, Phil has been getting his hands dirty recently. Um, he's been putting some some cash behind some paid ads uh, since the campaign started to sort of dip. After like the five day mark, we kind of had a gut check, and he was like, "I feel like I should have done more during the pre marketing phase before the campaign, so let's just go ahead and do it now." Um, and he put up some dough. I was doing a bunch of paid ads beforehand. But yeah, I've mostly been doing the marketing. You know, I, I handle the Instagram account and I'm the one who's bouncing around on Board Game Design Lab and Kickstarter Tabletop Guild and, um, you know, all the game designer groups on Facebook asking questions, looking for play tests, uh, posting pictures of artwork, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so yeah, yeah, mo- mostly me, but, uh, the rest of the team has been helping. And also, you know, the other good thing about having a team in a publishing company when you're a first time creator is like, when we went to launch, I was like, all right, guys, three years of work are about to come to fruition here. All of you need to get every family member you have, every friend from high school, like whoever you have in your personal network, they all need to back the game now. So go ahead and send those emails out. Um, and that actually was very, very helpful. Mm-hmm. And before you launched the, first of all, like, Oh, uh, at what point did you know it's good enough to kickstart or you're that you're ready to kickstart? Uh, we, we've set a Kickstarter launch date the like five, four or five times. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think was actually a good thing. You know, I, I, I think that probably the most valuable tool that, a that a creator has is time. Um, if you can just figure out how to use your time as best as possible. And for us setting a launch date that, felt right at the time, but ultimately ended up getting canceled. Like we didn't make them super duper public after the first time we set one and then didn't meet it because we weren't really sure. But something that I do creatively as a musician also um, is like, Hey, I really want to put out a new album or we should put out a new record or a split or something. Okay, cool. Well, uh, like what's the first step? And I'm like, the first step is let's go ahead and set a release date and put on it. Let let's, let's book a show for the release. Because once we set up that brick wall and we get into the test car as the test dummies and start hurtling towards that wall, you know, you have to do you got to figure out something. So um, setting those dates and then failing three times, but having the 
you know, the, the belly fire to try and meet that release date has only made our game better and only taught us more about how to market the game and where we were sort of messing up and what we were doing right. So we didn't really know we were ready until we got to the point where um, the game had undergone like another really big sweeping set of rules. I had asked Phil to figure out a solo mission version of Token Terrors, and he ended up coming back with basically this upending change to our 1v1 rule set that completely improved the game. Um, and it was sort of like, it was, it was a little bit of tough love kind of situation because we spent like two or three weeks being like, are we really going to completely like this rule booklet is like almost done. Like, what are we doing? And, uh, the change actually improved the game enough that I was like, okay, that's it. Like that is it. We're good. And, you know, for anybody listening, by the way, I I know that a lot of Kickstarter campaigns and I'm not, I'm not like saying this is bad by any means, but a lot of Kickstarter games, the rule booklet and the rules and the game itself is continuing to undergo development while after the campaign ends. Mm-hmm. Like you're getting you're getting rules. Rules are getting sent out to backers. They're getting print and play versions. And they're you know, I see tons of updates from campaigns that I back that are just like, all right, the PDFs available. Take a look and like try it. Let us know what you think and give us feedback and we'll change stuff, um, which is fine uh, for token terrors. That's not going to happen. Because like we know, like <laughs> like there's maybe like five percent of the game rules that might need some slight tweaks, but overall, like the game is like done. And yeah, when we finally launched, it was really about us getting that three month lead up pillow to sending up uh, prototype copies. So there's like a six month sort of like period where you're getting all your assets together for your manufacturer to make prototype copies. You're getting that money together. So for us, it was four hundred bucks for five copies of the game without minis. There's another $300 for a full set of resin printed miniatures to put in with the prototype. So this is $700 for five copies of our game. (laughs) Um, Then we had to find a bunch of reviewers, send them out to people, you know, allow a three month window for them to get around to reviewing our game and making video content. We had to pay some reviewers and previewers to make stuff, not reviewers. I misspoke. Reviewers will not accept money under any circumstance, which that's a whole nother conversation. I think it's kind of messed up personally. Um, and then, and then once all of those things were in place, it's like, yeah, we finally set the date and we had like four meetings online about like, are we going to launch on July 21st? Is like, is, is that what we're doing? Um, and yeah, we finally got there and it's working out. Okay. So far. And are you planning to get the game out on retail? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we have been talking with um, Alliance Distributors here in the States. They actually are HQ'd here in Maryland. So I have a mutual friend who works for them. And they, they haven't, we have not signed anything. They have not made any orders. But basically, they're like, you know, to my mind, and I can't speak for people who own brick and mortar uh, locations, you know, your, your friendly local game stores. Um, but a game that has miniatures that are interchangeable for Dungeons and Dragons and Magic the Gathering that only retails for $45 and has 42 miniatures inside of it, that seems like a slam dunk of a product to me. (laughs) Uh, Now, again, I don't own a game store, so I don't know. But part of what we're going to be doing with the money is... So not only is that money going to cover the cost of all of our tooling for the steel plate molds for us to injection mold all of our miniatures, which is huge... And it's going to, you know, of course, do the manufacturing run of, you know, all of the core editions of the game and the Warlord's Wealth version of the game, which is a slightly deluxified version. But 
we're also going to be creating this thing called the battle block. And what that is, is it's just a, it's just a singular package that we're actually completely redoing. The one that's on the campaign is shaped like a little candy bar. It's like mm-hmm. a rectangle. Um, we're going to be doing a new one where it has a three and a half by three and a half inch footprint or an 88.9 millimeter uh, footprint all around uh, to fit the token talent card underneath. And then there's going to be a vacuum formed plastic tray that looks like terrain. And there's going to be six miniatures sort of like moving across the terrain. And they're going to be inside of like this. There's going to be a die cut like environment with like trees and mountains around the outside. I'll say token terrors on the front and there's going to be this clear plastic dome. So it's going to look like this little biome terrarium thing with a bunch of tokens inside. So the idea for this is that with the battle block, people who are going to their local game store, maybe picking up a couple of booster packs of magic cards or stopping by to pick up some D and D stuff. will look at this little countertop display and go $10 for six minis. And I can get a bunch of goblins for my goblin deck. Cool. So like we're gonna have this little like toy like offering for people, and I think for for retailers, um, buying buying a case of the core game will be very low risk because I think that they will probably move. But we really we are gonna put some money behind developing this little like countertop like tear and fold little you know countertop end cap thing that'll just be like a quick little ten dollar purchase you can tack on before you leave the store. Before we kind of finish the <laughs> the podcast. Uh, could you tell me what what advice you'd give to someone who's thinking about going down the self-publishing Kickstarter route? Yeah, there's a lot. If you can, if you're not an artist, partner with an artist. Uh, the one thing that I hear that is really a is is prohibitive for a lot of a lot of creators is they have to work up the money to pay for their art package. Um, there's a lot of different ways that you can structure a partnership deal with an artist, whether it's giving them a percentage cut of the gross earnings of the Kickstarter campaign, or if you're legitimately getting into the indie publishing like space and you plan on releasing more and more games, you can just bring them on as an equity partner, file for your LLC, create the company, and actually give them a chunk of of the equity of the company. Um, and you know, that gets into another conversation about all the legal stuff that you need to do to start a publishing company, but you know, that is a way you can structure it. Cause for us, you know, like, especially right now I'm seeing a lull in traffic for our campaign. So, you know what I'm, you know, I solved that problem. Make some more artwork, baby. (laughs) I just, I'll just, I'll just make, I'll, I'll make more cards. I'll do more promotional artwork. I'll make comic books. I can just do that stuff. That aside, uh, start with a game that doesn't include 42 miniatures uh, and injection molding plastic because it's not really the costs. There's a lot of logistical stuff that comes along with that. And if anybody sort of follows my circuit of podcast appearances in the last couple of weeks, I, I was on Board Game Design Lab where I do a deep dive on just developing miniatures. Um, you know, it was a two year process to get to the point where we had these things the way that we liked them. So I don't know, make like a card game with a couple dice and like, I don't know, do like a set collection game or like a, a bag building game. Like just make a game that's like that you can that you can prototype in a weekend that you can play test in a month and that you can either bring on an art, an artist as a as a partner or have an art package that is, um, you know, fairly modest and a game that is under five thousand dollars to get manufactured mm-hmm. if you're getting into indie publishing. If you can, though, you know, I mean, like I have a ton of passion for what we're doing with token tears and like I would feel weird about releasing a game that I'm not as excited about. So I don't know. Follow your heart. If you're feeling really beholden to a certain project because you're just really fired up about the idea, like do what you want to do. But 
if you have the flexibility or the creative like gasoline to just develop a game that's not the game you want to make right now, but is just as good or close to as good. I don't know. Maybe make that smaller game to start. Um, the other thing is, cannot stress this enough, you absolutely must become an active member of the board game creation, the board game maker community on the internet. I'm talking about all of these different Facebook groups. Go to Reddit, go to Board Game Geek, and start a designer's diary. Um, you need to put yourself out there. All of the pre-development, all the stuff you're doing with your game from the moment that it is an idea to the point where you make a cutout with computer paper prototype and play with your wife or your best friend. Or uh, and then, you know, you get your prototype copies made from, you know, the board game maker and you get one offs of a neoprene mat or whatever, like just keep that dialogue and that narrative of development of your project alive and breathing on the Internet through the entire development process. This is one of the best things you can do to market your game without actually marketing it and also receive input and advice from people who have already done what you're trying to do. This is huge. You must do this. Um, just don't be, just don't stay quiet about the project. Like if you feel like you're going to take it to that step where you're going to kickstart it in a year or however long, just start talking about it and getting stuff out there. And lastly, if you're in, if, if you're, if you're indie, um, indie publishing, and I already mentioned this earlier, the digital marketing side of this business is something that is going to take a while to learn. There's going to be a ton of people who are going to approach you and say, Hey, I have the magic golden ticket on digital advertising. If you just pay me this or give me 15% of all the traffic I drive to your campaign or whatever, then I'm going to help you fund this and this and this. You know, I'm going to help you reach all of these monetary milestones. That stuff could be true. I don't know. We have not hired those people. Um, I've heard horror stories. I've heard success stories. I very recently started evaluating whether or not we wanted to hire Jellop to do stuff for us. Um, and we passed on that. But if you can be that person who starts off mopping the floor and moves to the assistant manager position, <laughs> do that in your own business. Like design a fun game that you love. And then from the point that you hit that, where you decide you're going to self-publish until you get to that Kickstarter campaign, spend some of your time learning about digital marketing. Again, mirror testing, A-B testing, how you're going to make your ad buys work for you so you don't spend as much money. You want to get high return on investment and you want to get people to convert with that golden nugget ad advertisement that you build. Um, I wish I had done that because right now, if we were converting for like under four cents per click, be a completely different story. We could be, you know, we could be looking at like just way more money. We could have been, we could be making way more money is all. All right. Well, uh, thanks uh, a lot for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me on this excellently named podcast. Ivan Player Layer is a sick name. If you guys ever need any branding art, holler at your boy. Yeah, that'd be awesome. <laughs>